Shut up and sit down. Welcome back to In the Context of Empire. This is Matt McKenna. I am very privileged today to speak with someone who I have been a fan of, someone I've read a lot of their work and listened to them speak uh, quite a bit in recent years, and that is Christine Ahn. Christine is the founder and executive director at Women Cross DMZ. Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, we're really honored to have you on. And so let's cut to the chase here. So Women Cross DMZ has done some incredible peace work, specifically with regards to bringing peace to the Korean Peninsula. Uh, we have this war that kind of just goes on in the background. For most people in the United States, it's kind of white noise. Uh, we kind of forget about that the, the fact that the United States is still technically at war on the Korean Peninsula. But for you, you're trying to bring this attention to a larger population, and you're doing a great job of that. So can you tell us just a little bit about your background in activism and specifically how did you develop an interest in anti-imperialism and again specifically with regards to the situation on the korean peninsula thank you so much matt and it's a great honor to be with you and you um thank you for that very warm um introduction i so i was born in south korea and i immigrated to this country when i was three um, I, I mean, how did I get interested in anti-imperialism and the Korean issue? I mean, it's, it's a long story because I'm in my late 40s, mid to late 40s right now. And I guess I had a, so I, you know, I had a very rough childhood. I was born into a working class immigrant family and I moved a lot. I moved with different siblings. And so it's, I mean, in many ways, I guess I really understood the experience uh, of being an immigrant in this country, being a working class immigrant in this country. And then, gosh, you know, just, I think that experience really um, fueled my passion to uh, learn more about inequality, learn about racism in this country. And so, I mean, it's quite an incredible feat that I even made it to college, but um, I went to school in Boulder, Colorado, and I did a lot of activism. I mean, that was a time when there was um, the ethnic studies movement in the 1990s. Um, it was also, you know, the signing of NAFTA. It was the beginning of kind of U.S. economic globalization. It wasn't the start. We know that goes way, way back. But um, it was kind of the beginning of the rise of the global justice movement, you know, against the WTO, against NAFTA. Um, so I actually spent quite a fair amount of time, like on the U.S.-Mexico border. I spent some time in, in Jamaica. I lived in Kingston to, you know, learn about the impact of um, structural adjustment programs on Jamaica um, in the wake of the IMF bailout. Um, and actually it was, um, so I had already developed kind of this critique of U.S. 
neoliberalism, of U.S. militarism. And then it was just like I was a graduate student at Georgetown and I was taking this class in the School of Foreign Service. And this guy named Bob Gallucci, who worked in the Clinton administration, was actually um, the key uh, negotiator for the Clinton team with the North Koreans. He, t- he told this incredible story about how um, the Clinton administration in the early days almost went to war with North Korea. And so this was like 1994 and, um, and that, uh, that they almost went to, you know, um, negotiate like that basically was the it was the carter it was president carter that that blocked them from doing that like he flew to pyongyang with the um, cnn camera crew he met with kim il sung he sat down and negotiated what became the terms of the agreed framework which was a deal that froze north korea's nuclear weapons program for x number of years and i remember just that story just really um like hit me so hard because here I was as a social justice activist that had been working on all these different issues um, on immigration and racism and inequality and poverty in America. And I, as a Korean American, had known nothing really about Korea, about my homeland, about... And so that began for me a really long journey. And it was through my relationships with longtime Korean American activists, South Korean, um, you know, those who were part of the pro-democracy movement in South Korea, those who had actually traveled to North Korea, whether it was to reunite with families in North Korea. um, I got this kind of, you know, uh, movement analysis, movement perspective that was just so enlightening to me. And I just felt that, I couldn't turn my back as a Korean American now learning this critical history about um, the U.S. role in the division of the Korean Peninsula, the U.S. role in um, the brutal war, like the way that it, it, it conducted itself in the Korean War, you know, this its indiscriminate bombing campaign, um, just you know, the really heinous history that is just covered up in this country, that is just hidden, forgotten, intentionally erased. Um, I just felt as a Korean American that I I had a responsibility to bring closure to this war. So, um, gosh, uh, I guess in the early 2000s, I I went on my first trip to North Korea in 2004. That was during the U.S. invasion of Iraq. You may recall that North Korea landed on the axis of evil. And um, I just... Uh, I started a think tank called the Korea Policy Institute with several other progressive Korean American scholars. Um, and so by actually by day, I was working at um, women's organizations. I was working at the Women of Color Resource Center in Oakland, uh, which was founded by Linda Burnham and Miriam Ching Louie and Angela Davis, like women that were really part of the third world women's movement uh, in the 70s. And then um, by night, I was a by moonlight, I was a, a Korea peace activist. And so really um, the birth of women cross DMZ, the vision that I had, it was really came in a dream that I had um, that when, when women would end the Korean war is um, really, it's the culmination of, of all, all this work. 
and uh, really the the merging of the two key areas of of my dedicated life as an activist, which is for gender equality and women's rights and peace on the Korean Peninsula. Wow, thank you. That was wow, an amazing thank you. detailing of Detail. your history, history on this issue. I'm sorry, I have a bit of an echo right now. I'm going to slow down here. Okay. All right. So with regards to, you mentioned that the history of the U.S. role has been censored. And we even call the Korean War in America the Forgotten War. I assure you that it's not forgotten by anybody on the Korean Peninsula, though. So I, I think people really need to understand, like, what was this war that we, now we have this dynamic, this very silly, childish dynamic in the United States where we think, well, North Korea, the DPRK, that's the bad Korea, and South Korea, that's the good Korea, right? And, and of course, you know, people who listen to the show knows the, the you know, human rights and morality really has nothing to do with U.S. foreign policy. And this is a great example. So can you tell us about what the Korean War was, you know, this war we call the Forgotten War here? Uh, how ha does the events of the Korean War still influence policy in the DPRK, in the United States, and in South Korea? So just fill us in as like, what exactly went on during this war that maybe most Americans might not realize? I know it's so um, it's so complicated because it started out as a police action, you know. Um, President Truman at the time did not even have go to Congress to get authorization. It was considered a police action, and it was supposed to be very limited fighting. But um, really, you know, I, I start from the experience of of my parents because they were born in the 1920s. They've since passed away, but. They, they were born and they grew up in a Korea that was colonized by Japan. And so for 35 years, the Korean people lived under a brutal occupation. And so when um, Japan was defeated at the end of World War II, um, you know, millions of Koreans poured out into the streets and they were carrying the, the Korean flags because they were celebrating Korean independence. Finally, Korea was going to be liberated. and. Instead of liberation, what Koreans got was division because uh, the United States, without consulting any Koreans, literally, you know, two uh, defense officials tore a page from the National Geographic and drew a line across the 38th parallel, you know, giving north of the 38th parallel to the Soviets and then keeping south of the 38th parallel, which included Seoul, for the Americans. And so um, that's how Korea became divided. And, uh, you know, it was supposed to be just a short-term division, but what, what then ensued was um, a three-year um, military government, you know, um, and then they had separate elections uh, to the protest of, uh, you know, people in South Korea that didn't want to have separate elections. And, you know, that's a much more complicated history because that then led to the brutal quashing of those protests. For example, on Jeju Island, um, you know, I, up to, you know, 30 to 80,000 people, we don't know the exact figure, but we know that tens of thousands of Koreans on Jeju Island were massacred because they were protesting the separate elections, but then they were cast as um, communists. When in fact, you know, if you look at the archival 
um, information from U.S. intelligence, you know, they knew they weren't communists. They knew they had nothing to do with the North Koreans. It was just the desire of the sentiments of Koreans to want to be independent, to not be occupied by the U.S., to not have foreign intervention um, after so many years of colonization. And so um, that's what led to uh, the what is officially called the start of the Korean War on June 25th, 1950, when in fact, actually a lot of critical historians will say that wasn't the official start date. There were actually, um, you know, shots fired from both sides. And yes, that is the official day when the North Koreans crossed over um, the 38th parallel and into South Korea. But that is officially called the start of the Korean War. And for three years, four million people were killed in this conflict, uh, mostly Korean, mostly civilians. It just lay the Korean peninsula to waste. Um, there was a, a Hungarian journalist who traveled to Korea at the time and just witnessed the carnage. And I just, there was a, a passage that uh, he's quoted in Bruce Cummings' book about the Korean War. And he says, you know, it's just like insanity for me to like witness um, this destruction. And then the rule of American soldiers who know nothing about the culture, nothing about the people, nothing about the history, not nothing about the language to then bring civilization to an order to this ancient civilization. I mean, that's the insanity of the Korean War. And what was what were American soldiers doing there in the first place? And, you know, I mean, obviously it was the beginning of the Cold War. It was uh, a way to contain China, communist China. It was obviously to push back against the Soviet Union. Um, but it was fought on the Korean Peninsula and it was the Korean people who suffered enormously. And unfortunately, that three year war just came to a, a, a temporary end because um, what was promised when the generals from the US side representing the quote unquote UN command, which was really the first coalition of the willing, and then on the North Korean side, on behalf of the um, uh, Chinese Voluntary People's Army, was the armistice and they promised to return within 98 days to negotiate a permanent settlement and that never happened. And so here we are 70 years later, um, still in a state of war, the US against the North Koreans. And you know the, the tragedy is that there have been many moments in Korean history, especially in South Korea, where you've had progressive or liberal administrations such as the one now in power um, that have sought to have reconciliation, that have sought to end the Korean War, that have sought a different future for the Korean people, ending this perpetual war. Um, and unfortunately, and this is never spoken about in mainstream media, it has been the United States that has been the obstacle in that process. And so that is why it's so critical. And I appreciate so much you giving me this opportunity to give this critical history because it is on us, on the United States, on Americans to help bring closure to this war. Because, you know, I mean, on the North Korean side, I've been there eight times. I've seen um, the way that uh, sanctions have impacted. Yes, absolutely. 
the Kim regime is authoritarian. It's the third generation of that leadership. But maintaining a stance of war against the North Koreans justifies the hawks in those countries to maintain a national security state. And that whole country, you know, I don't know if many of your listeners have been to Cuba. Well, if you go to Cuba or if you go to North Korea, there aren't advertisements by, you know, um, companies, corporations. What you see instead is political propaganda posters all around the country, which is commemorating the war, which is uh, remembering on a day-to-day basis uh, what the Americans did. And, you know, this isn't just the perspectives I've heard from North Koreans. If you actually read archival testimony of uh, Curtis LeMay or other generals that fought, that were dropping the bombs, dropping the napalm um, throughout the Korean Peninsula, they will say there are no more targets. Uh, we've destroyed anything that is living or breathing on the Korean Peninsula. 80% of North Korean cities were bombed to bits. We committed genocide when we bombed um, dams that flooded entire farmlands and fields. And so um, that is that is what we have to reckon with. And so when we look at North Korea, the kind of a gross Orientalist, like jingoist characterization. I mean, I, I think about this New Yorker cartoon that was on the cover during the Fire and Fury era, which is like Kim Jong-un, this like imbecile playing with nuclear weapons. It's like, that just has a total erasure of political, of geopolitical context, or even the history of what the United States has done to um, the Korean Peninsula. And, you know, essentially created um, the kind of, uh, resistance, you know, to U.S. empire um, on the Korean Peninsula. And so, yeah, it's just, and, you know, so yes, the sanctions, the sanctions, what it's doing to everyday um, people in North Korea, um, the, the, I mean, there's just so much. <laughs> I feel like I could go into it, but it just is cruel, it's draconian, and it just, um, it's so frustrating when most people have none of this context or history yeah that was a lot yeah that was a lot <laughs> yeah it was a lot <laughs> uh, and, and but it was great but it was great i'm actually gonna lower actually my gonna volume lower so my there's volume. no echo but uh, i'm gonna comment on a few things um you can hear me all right right now okay uh so you so you mentioned a great book uh bruce cummings the korean war a really excellent and, and you mentioned a few things that i learned from that book as well because we do have this traditional narrative North Korea invaded South Korea, and of course it's far more complicated than that. Uh, it, the reality is that there was fighting going on both sides of the border. Uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, I think he says 200,000 people had been killed in South Korea prior to the outbreak of what we refer to as the Korean War. The United States had installed a military dictator, Sigmund Rhee, in the South. This was not a case where it's, where it's obvious that there's one side as the aggressor. And the other side isn't. But, you know, before we move on, because this is really important, you mentioned the, yes, the DPRK is authoritarian. Uh, but you have to wonder what is the trauma of the Korean War done to that society where, and you talk about foreign intervention, talk about attacks on your national security. Uh, bombing every major city, killing three to four million people, and I think genocide is the appropriate term. You know, look at the United States, and not to draw direct parallels, but 
After an attack like September 11, 3,000 people killed. Tragic, but we react with a global war on terror and internal suppression, uh, domestic suppression. So I'm just wondering, like, do you think that the, the authoritarian nature, as you said, uh, in within the DPRK, uh, the desire to have nuclear weapons, do you think that might have something to do with U.S. aggression both 70 years ago but also today? I mean, absolutely. You know, um, that's what they say. They say they are pursuing um, a nuclear program so that to defend their national sovereignty, you know, against the hostile threats from the United States. Um, and it's not just rhetoric, it is truly the experience. And, you know, I often say, like, they don't need to just look at uh, the experience of what happened in Iraq to Saddam Hussein or to Libya to Qaddafi, they have their own experience of, you know, surviving indiscriminate bombing from the United States. And so, um, you know, that history is so important to understand the present moment. And, you know, oftentimes um, I'm attacked because um, I advocate for peace as an important step towards either achieving denuclearization of the entire Korean Peninsula, which includes also removing U.S. nuclear assets that are around South Korea. In fact, you know, where, when did the nuclear crisis begin? Did it begin with North Korea? Uh, 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 I don't think so. You know, it's like we actually threatened to use nuclear weapons during the Korean War. Um, and it was, you know, the U.S. that installed nuclear weapons into South Korea. And it wasn't until George Bush Sr. that they actually removed them from South Korea. And, you know, South Korea is under the U.S. nuclear umbrella. So, um, you know, I think it's really important to disabuse um, the, the notion that it was North Korea that triggered the nuclear crisis. Of course, we want, as, as a peace activist, I want to see the elimination of nuclear weapons from our world. They are a violent, violent weapon that should just not even exist. But at the same time, you know, it has been the one thing, unfortunately, that the North Koreans that have prevented the Americans from conducting regime change in North Korea. And, you know, on the issue of human rights, I feel that, you know, um, as somebody who advocates for peace as an important path to improving human rights, it, it just baffles me that um, somehow um, neoconservative hawks have owned the debate on human rights in North Korea. You know, it's just um, talk about the co-optation of human rights or the weaponization of human rights to justify a hostile U.S. militarized foreign policy against that country, when in fact there is a complete ignorance about how existing U.S. foreign policy, whether it's in the form of um, this brutal sanctions. I mean, you know, the U.N. Security Council sanctions that were passed um, in 2017 they um, basically like banned a whole bunch of things from entering North Korea and banned North Korea from exporting certain things such as textiles. Well, you know, who works in those textile factories? But women workers, right? Women garment workers. And so, um, you know, in just one fell swoop, it's like how many tens of thousands of women lost their jobs? And at the same time, we're advocating for women's empowerment. And we, you know, all the studies have shown that when women control the purse, that everybody improves from the children's ability to be fed, to go to school. 
And um, yet our singular U.S. policy, which is sanctions against North Korea, have these deleterious effects on the day-to-day -day life of, of ordinary North Korean people. Like there, you know, there's this amazing Korean-American doctor named Key Park, who is a, a neuros, neurosurgeon. Um, he's also at the faculty of, of Harvard Medical School. And for years, he has gone to North Korea to conduct brain surgery, like literally. And he talks about how um, on one of his recent trips, and obviously not recently because of the pandemic, but in the last like two years ago, he went and he was um, going to perform surgery. And he asked, you know, um, for a scalpel and uh, and the North Korean you know, nurse handed him a scalpel and he went to go make a cut. And he said he couldn't do it because it was such a dull knife because they are reusing because um, they are, you know, they can't import metal items. So like medical devices, humanitarian equipment cannot make it into North Korea because of these sanctions. And so whether it's the sanctions, whether it's the military exercises that the US and South Korea regularly conduct that are, um, you know, used to um, rehearse for war or regime change. Um, you know, there are just numerous policies that we don't even get to see the day of light of um, in the United States. And instead, what we always see is North Korea launches a missile. North Korea has these provocative behaviors or this uh, hostile rhetoric against the United States when we just totally um, censor all of that other information and context. Right. It's, it's always North Korea tested a missile today. It's never the United States and South Korea are rehearsing the invasion that killed 3 million people 70 years ago and practicing it as if uh, our country would. I mean, there's not even any analog to this, but I'm trying because there's no equivalent to a country invading the United States. But let's let's just say Al Qaeda was practicing drills on the Mexican border to, I don't know, attack the United States as if that wouldn't trigger a, re a reaction. But moving us forward, I, I do want to, I know you ha have this amazing organization that you're the director of, and that's Women Cross DMZ. Can you take a minute to just explain to us uh, how did this organization form and what are you hoping to accomplish? What are the goals of the organization? So I definitely uh, fill us in. Okay. So um, as I was mentioning by daylight, I was working at women's organizations and the, the last women's organization I'd worked for was um, in San Francisco called the Global Fund for Women. And they're amazing. They raise millions to give to women's groups around the world. And um, we had launched an initiative called Women Dismantling Militarism. And it was, you know, to try to raise money to support women in conflict zones, grassroots women's groups in conflict zones. And um, we had just screened the film called Pray the Devil Back to Hell, which was a film made by Abigail Disney about Liberian women and how Liberian women um, crossed ethnic and religious lines, Christians and Muslims, to bring an end to um, Liberia's, you know, 16-year-old civil conflict. And I was so inspired by that movie, um, you know, the role of Leima Gaboi, who became the Nobel Peace Laureate after that film. And, you know, I had um, I'd gone to sleep and in the middle of the night, I turned on my computer and I 
read uh, an article in the New York Times um, about flooding that had happened. It was in late summer and the um, the river was called the Imjin River was flooding. And um, what happened was North Korea allegedly lifted the floodgates to prevent the farmlands from getting flooded. And in that process, didn't tell South Korea. And at the time it was um, Lee Myung-bak in South Korea and Kim Jong-il in the North. And um, I don't know, eight people I think in the South were killed, including a father and his son. And I just thought, oh my God, this is so ridiculous and insane. Like, why couldn't they just pick up the phone and call each other and just say, you know, we need to lift the floodgates. But because tensions were so high between the two Koreas, the hotline had been cut off. And and so that's what happened. And I. I went back to sleep and I just thought, oh my God, this is so insane. And then that's when I had this dream. I, I literally had this dream where I woke up in the middle of the night and I was wading in the river. And um, then like a glow of light started to flow down the river and that light became like morphed into family reunions. And I just thought it was so beautiful when you, if you ever see images of elderly Koreans who haven't seen their siblings in like, 60 years and three generations, it's like the most heartbreaking thing. And, but I, I just, I had to keep going up the river to find the source of the light. And, and that's when I came to a circle of women and they were stirring something like witches in a big black kettle. And then whatever they were stirring, then um, they poured into vessels that then flowed down the river and became the light. And that's when I woke up and I told my then husband, I said, oh my goodness, I know who will end the war. Women will end the Korean War. And I just thought, oh, but but how are we going to do that? And I um, began to do some research. I gathered some oral histories from South Korean women. In fact, this is the 30th anniversary of the first meeting of North and South Korean women since the Korean War. And um, they were actually brought together by some Japanese women, which is so profound given the role that Japan played in the colonial um, colonization of Korea and then, you know, its vulnerability for division. And um, and that, yeah, that I just thought, wow, like that's an amazing history that it's been done. And when there are times of impasse between the two Koreas, the international community has a really important role to play. And so um, fast forward in 2013, I saw, I don't know, I think maybe a BBC article about five Kiwis who crossed the DMZ on their motorbikes. And I just remember, oh my God, that is so crazy. And it was during like Park who is um, total neocon, the daughter of a dictator who ruled South Korea with an iron fist. And I just thought, oh my God, that's amazing. Um, and so I reached out to the organizers and I asked them, how did you do this? And uh, they basically gave me a blueprint and I, I followed it. And I said, you know, if women, if they can do this, like women calling for peace can do this. And so that was the birth of Women Cross DMZ. And so in 2015, on the 50th, or sorry, on the 70th anniversary of Korea's division by the US and the former Soviet Union, 30 women peacemakers traveled to uh, China, then to North Korea, 
We held women's peace symposiums in Pyongyang and then later in Seoul, but we marched with 5,000 North Korean women in Pyongyang. We marched with 2,000 North Korean women in Kaesong, which is on the northern side of the DMZ. We crossed the DMZ and then we marched with an additional 3,000 South Korean women. And, you know, and so in total, we marched with 10,000 Korean women on that journey. And since then, we have been um, continuing our work to work transnationally to mobilize women and other people to end the Korean War. We want to see a peace agreement. We want to see um, the inclusion of women at all levels of the peace building process, because we know that when women are involved, that it actually leads to a peace agreement. And, and I have to say, it's been a profound thing to have read all that research, to see that data, and to know now that actually, like, you know, on the 60th anniversary of the Korean War, like I organized a congressional briefing to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the Korean War. And we could only get two members of Congress to, to be vocal in their support of peace with North Korea. And that was Dennis Kucinich. I don't know if you're too young to remember who no, he I is. Remember. But yeah, so Dennis Kucinich and Barbara Lee, who, you know, it was because her father fought in the Korean War that she U.S. invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. And so, um, you know, and now, I mean, 10 years later, because of our mobilization, because of the grassroots movement that we've built um, through the Korea Peace Now Grassroots Network and our work with all these other peace, um, multi-generational Korean Americans, veterans and other activists, that we have now managed to get, you know, over 50 co-sponsors of a House resolution to call for an end to the Korean War. And in fact, I was just on a call with Ro Khanna's office today. Um, he was the lead sponsor of that resolution. He's from California calling for an end to the Korean War with a peace agreement. And he is recommitted to a reintroducing um, new legislation that would call for an end to the Korean War. So it is really inspiring to see that when ordinary people you know, organize and we build power from the grassroots that we could actually um, begin to see the conversation changing. I mean, I'm not saying that we are anywhere near where we need to be, but still it is amazing to see some progress on, on an intractable issue. As you said, 70 years of war that just people have just cast as either they, they don't even know about the war or they think that the war ended, you know, um, decades ago. Right. And so you mentioned the role that feminism and women's activism has played in Women Cross DMZ. And I could add organizations as well that are doing great work like Code Pink in terms of their activism towards peace. Uh, and I want to dwell on that feminism piece for a little bit. But, but before we get into that, because I feel like you have some really good critiques of what other people define as fed, uh, as feminism. But before we move on to that, you know, there is this aspect of you know, something we all run into is we advocate for don't go to war is, but what about the human rights violation of country X? And you, you've already addressed this somewhat, but you know, how do you typically respond to people who will only focus on the human rights violations of the DPRK? Uh, you know, you know, some of us get called like apologists for various regimes around the world. And, you know, I'll even preface it, and I don't mean this as, as a blanket statement, but 
there is a lot of propaganda. I'm not saying there aren't human rights violations in the DPRK, but there is a there. We know that there is a pro. There are programs that like seeks out dissidents, pays them, uh, and of course we know that the United States, especially, manufactures human rights violations when when none exist. But undoubtedly, governments do abuse their people, and the DPRK is no exception. Uh, can you speak to how you respond to? the concern allegedly other peace-minded people have when they would confront you with, well, what do you think of the DPRK's human rights violations? Well, I mean, I, I would start by saying that um, absolutely, I don't think we can deny that there are human rights violations taking place in North Korea. I mean, it is an authoritarian state, but um, I guess we then pose the question, then what is the alternative? You know, um, has the pressure-based approach of maximum pressure through sanctions, through um, military provocation, through political isolation, has that actually succeeded in improving human rights? And I would answer quite confidently, no, that is not. That has actually worsened the day-to-day existence of North Korean people. And in fact, it's hawks within North Korea to maintain more of a a national security state in that country. And in fact, you know, um, I think just as you've pointed out, it's really important to, um, you know, put the mirror back up onto us. Like you said, in the wake of 9-11, like what did we witness? But mass surveillance state, right? Um, Over all of our communications and, you know, I was on the Samantha B show and one of the questions that, you know, they asked me was, um, well, what about um, that evil dictatorship in North Korea? And, um, and you know, my response to them was, well, yes, like uh, a country that systematically surveils its population and all of its communications, a country where one in four children go to bed hungry, where we systematically discriminate against, um, you know, a certain populations of people in this country, where we have the largest prison population in the world. I think we have to ask the very same question of our own government, right? Because um, it is the United States that is in fact one of the worst human rights violators in the world. And and not just in terms of what we do to black and brown people in this country, but also to what the US military does and the violence that it wreaks through its militarized foreign policy around the world. And so um, I don't bring that context to deflect against what is happening in North Korea, but I'm just saying that the current approach has totally failed. And so it's time now for a new approach. How about a peace first approach that actually um, could be the thing that could create the conditions of trust to be established between the US and North Korea to actually sit down and have dialogue so that we could actually make progress on things that we care about, whether it's achieving a nuclear free Korean Peninsula or achieving the improvement of the human rights of people in North Korea. Yeah, and I would add that 95% of the human rights concerns are disingenuous because if you turn it around, like, well, what have you said about U.S. support for Saudi Arabia or U.S. endorsement of the apartheid in Israel, Um, you know, so on and so forth. The United States supports 73% of world dictatorships, so it's totally selective to focus on the DPRK. But uh, 
you know, and you know, you, you mentioned. I can't help but dwell on this. You mentioned that families reunited after uh, after decades of being apart. You know, some of the more hawkish Democrats allegedly so uh, concerned about family separation at the border. Talk about family separation at the border. The, these families that are divided by this line created by the imperial United States and not able to see each other for decades. You know, that's family separation as well. And we need to identify that this is a human rights violation that is ongoing, that is enforced by the United States. Absolutely. And and moving us forward, you know, I I really want to dwell on this idea of feminism. And this is somewhat contentious, uh, but I really think that like human rights, feminism is something that has been weaponized that has been hijacked and I, I say that you know I'll acknowledge full that I'm a man I'm not, I'm not the person to define what feminism is but I, I found an article that you were included in mentioned in by Sarah Lazar uh, she's a great writer at in these times about this new thing called she defines as pro-war feminism so you were included in this article with several other people that uh, on the show we really respect including a uh, former guest Shireen Aladami uh, so the article is called "The Women Activists Rejecting Biden's Pro-War Feminism." So, what is this pro-war feminism that she is describing? And do those of us who are concerned about issues of equality, uh, gender equality, but also wary about how U.S. imperialism might hijack that kind of thing, need to be concerned about how feminism has been weaponized by a pro-war, pro-imperialist agenda? I mean, absolutely. I think we saw it as, I mean, in the Obama administration, right, Uh, with Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State, Um, you know, using the plight of Afghan women or the plight of Libyan women or the plight of North Korean women. It's often used to justify U.S. militarism. Um, And I think we have to really challenge that notion because um, what in fact is in the case of North Korea, you know, we we often see reports by Human Rights Watch about, you know, the gross uh, prison camps and, you know, the, the evil regime. And what really bothers me so much about that framework is that it totally... Um, takes out of context what the U.S. role is in maintaining the conditions of those countries. And so we have to be really wary of um, the the guise of using feminism to justify U.S. military um, intervention in various places. And so that's why it's so critical and I, I, I you know and like we're seeing it so much in the Biden administration you know it's like oh he has appointed the greatest number of women and people of color into his administration well I think that that's where we have to really challenge that you know is it necessarily yes absolutely representation we are a almost um, more than 50% people of color nation in this country. And so, of course, we want that diversity to be reflected at all levels of the leadership of this country. But at the same time, like, you know, what kinds of people of color, what kinds of women will be put into those positions of power? And, you know, certainly not people like Sarah Lazar and I that are critical necessarily of, of U.S. foreign policy. 
um, will be appointed to those positions. And oftentimes, you know, they are women, um, they are people of color that have had long ties, right, to the arms, uh, weapons manufacturers, or the think tanks that are part of the revolving door with, you know, the military industrial complex. And so I think that we need to put forward a more progressive um, analysis and a frame that, you know, what kind of foreign policy do we want? What kind of security actually makes us secure? And I think that's where like a truly feminist um, analysis is so important because um, as feminists and, you know, Matt, I think you're a feminist, you know, you don't have to necessarily be a woman or have a vagina to be a feminist. You know, you could be a feminist because you believe in gender equality because we need to challenge the way that gender has been used, right? Um, in a patriarchal society that um, like says that all men need to be like this and all women need to be like this. And that just creates more brokenness, right? Where men can't express their emotions, where men can't, they have to be in a certain toxic masculine way to be men, right? Or women have to be ultra feminine to be considered women. And, um, you know, and I think that's the beauty and power of feminism is where we can challenge all these gender binaries um, that have led us down these like really, um, you know, unhealthy, unhealthy imbalances. And so um, I, you know, I, I think that we are in a critical moment right now where, you know, we are hopefully coming out of the pandemic, but I think the pandemic has really laid bare that the traditional notions of security where we have depended on a militarized security to give us our sense of security has totally failed us. Um, in this moment of pandemics, in this moment of climate change, like we've invested so much in, you know, weapons of mass destruction, in a military infrastructure and militarized economy that has totally failed us in terms of really defining what makes us secure. And so I think, you know, I mean, the fact that you have an entire podcast on empire, um, I think the fact that we have, you know, I was just on a, um, a American Bar Association panel about anti-Asian violence and gender and race, and that, you know, that there's a whole generation I was pointing out of um, Asian American scholars and experts that are talking about the long history of U.S. racism, the, 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 that I was talking about um, the long history of U.S. imperialism in the region, right? Um, and how the way that we have dehumanized, whether it's people in Korea or in Vietnam or Japan, that we could just drop atomic bombs on 200,000 people or just like splatter napalm or Asian orange on entire thousands of, of people, um, you know, that that will have reverberations on Asian Americans at home and that our, our hawkish anti-China, anti-North Korea rhetoric that is, um, you know, just being said by both Democratic and Republicans that, you know, that that is um, that is all contributing to this moment of of anti-Asian violence. Sorry, that was I was just riffing. <laughs> no, I, I do want to ask you. I want to ask you more about that. That's going to be my last question. But you know, if you you raised some really good points, and you know, you focused on people like 
Hillary Clinton, I would throw in people like Samantha Power, Michelle Flournoy. I think the article Sarah wrote was when it was possible Michelle Flournoy was going to be appointed as Secretary of Defense. But I don't uh, presume to know what's going on in Hillary Clinton's head, but I know a lot of people had uh, derided her early in her career as being, you know, too far left or, or maybe too much of a peacenik, which was never true about her. But it, it de- does seem to think, be this thing with Democrats, but, he, but in her case, having the double whammy of being a Democrat and being a woman, where they go so far in the other direction, where Hillary Clinton is one of the most hawkish people in the Senate. You know, she's one of those, you know, the, Hillary Clinton has a lot of blood on her hands. So, like, to raise those criticisms, uh, need we, that needs to be able to be done uh from a feminist critique without viewing the feminist in the situation as being the person who is advocating for dr- bombs dropped on women. But uh, right. moving us forward to that last point you made, and it, it really relates to some an article that I thought was uh, incredibly prescient and, and something I'm a teacher. I even posted it for students in our Google Classroom that they have ac- access to. And you, you uh, co-wrote this article called Anti-Asian Violence in America is rooted to U.S. imperialism. So, so racism, kind of like feminism, in some circles, seems to be discussed in a way as if it does not connect directly to militarism or imperialism. So you you, you started to talk about that a little bit, but uh, you know, so we have this unfortunately just the latest round of anti-Asian violence in Atlanta. As you said, there's a very long history of anti-Asian violence in the United States. You know, can you speak to how U.S. foreign policy violence toward Asians overseas is not it's not coincidental that it that suddenly when when we ramp up uh, tension with China, suddenly there's anti-Asian violence. This has always been the case. So can you talk about how the dehumanization of Asians overseas is directly connected to anti-Asian racism at home? Absolutely. Um, So. You know, I wrote that piece um, in the wake of what happened in Atlanta when uh, the young white male massacred six Asian women and uh, the authorities there, you know, cast it as just the guy had a bad day or he had a sex addiction um, when, you know, in fact, it clearly is part of a long and, you know, recent spike. I mean, I know that, yes, it has definitely been the case of of violence against Asians has long existed since the arrival of Asians into this country. But, um, you know, the what happened after Atlanta, you know, the 76 the year old Chinese woman that was punched in the face in San Francisco of all places. And then the recent attack on the Filipina 65 year old Filipina woman, you know, by a, a, a man who brutally attacked her and said, um, you don't belong here. You know, and that just hit so powerfully for me because if you actually look at the long history of U.S. imperialism, it goes back to the 1850s, right? When the U.S. um, sent the first naval fleet to Japan to force open the ports in Tokyo, to force open trade, you know, to accommodate the rapid industrialization of the U.S., to export U.S. goods, to import raw materials. Um, And we always did it with gunboat diplomacy, right? So it was uh, Japan first, and then it was Korea. And in fact, you know, um, I still remember going to North Korea and seeing an image 
of the USS Sherman, which was a ship that actually sailed up the Taedong River and into Pyongyang. And actually, the Koreans didn't want to have anything to do with them. And so they actually burned that ship down. Um, but then a decade later, you know, the U.S. waged a war, a, you know, basically a campaign against Korea and sent more armed naval fleets into the Korean waters and forced trade with Korea. So then was Philippines and then but I think it's so interesting because um, I'm based here in Hawaii. And if you actually look at you know, the overthrow of Hawaii, it has so much to do with capitalism, racism, and militarism all kind of conspiring, right? Because um, there were white merchant settlers here in Hawaii that were you know, making a handsome profit exporting sugar to the mainland. To, well, it wasn't the mainland, it was the United States at the time because Hawaii was a sovereign kingdom. And, uh, you know, the South then, you know, wanted to protect um, the its market. And so the U.S. started to impose tariffs. And because uh, the white, you know, what we they call Howley merchants didn't want to be, impo- you know, be imposed by these tariffs, decided basically to conspire with the U.S. Marines to the overthrow of Queen Liliuokalani. And then, you know, um, what is so fascinating is, is it wasn't um, just that they dispossessed Hawaiians, but it was also because they wanted to use um, Hawaii as the pivot point, the place to like create Pearl Harbor to then launch its 20th century wars. And so we see that in Japan, we see that in Korea against China. We also see that in Vietnam and in Laos. And so the kind of brutal dehumanization, whether it's, as I mentioned, the indiscriminate bombing of the Korean Peninsula, whether it was the you know um, splattering of Agent Orange, uh, you know, and other herbicides throughout Vietnam. I mean, you know, March 16th, which was the day that the um, Atlanta massacre happened, was actually the anniversary of the My Lai massacre in Vietnam, right? Where um, US soldiers brutally raped and killed 500 villagers in the tiny village of My Lai. And so, um, you know, I make the point that um, all of that dehumanization obviously will have reverberations back in terms of American perceptions of Asians. But it's also, I mean, yes, there are times when, you know, uh, for sure, there's anti-Asian violence throughout the history of the United States. But there are key moments when um, U.S. hostility towards Asian countries, whether it's Japan, which then led to 120,000 Japanese Japanese Americans, right, being um, sent to internment camps, or um, during the Korean War, when China entered the war um, and sided with North Korea, you know, what the implications were against Chinese American communities um, who were targeted by McCarthyism and red baited, right? Like that led to massive attacks on Chinese um, um, owned businesses, you know, through Chinatowns all across the United States. And so, you know, we see the way in which um, there are times when the tensions exist. So, for example, the most obvious was in 1982 when Vincent Chin was, you know, beaten to death by two white Detroit auto workers because they thought he was Japanese, um, right? Because there were trade wars that were taking place between the US and Japan. And they had all this like anger against 
Asians because, you know, Toyota or Honda were allegedly taking American jobs. And, you know, I think that is what we're seeing today. And, you know, it was Trump definitely, um, you know, un unleashed this massive attack verbal and physical assault on Asian Americans when he called COVID-19 the Wuhan virus or Kung flu. Um, but it, it goes beyond Trump. You know, it is so deep in um, the American psyche and definitely in the orientation of U.S. foreign policy against China. And it's like, you know, um, we often see the way in which, I'm sorry, Matt, I'm almost done <laughs> going on, but I just feel like, you know, the, the rhetoric, the anti-China rhetoric is so, so outlandish and so outrageous. And, um, you know, to think that it won't reverberate back to impact Asian Americans is absolutely ignorant. And, you know, and it's totally devoid of the fact that we have 290 U.S. bases encircling China. We conduct regular provocative war drills, you know, against China. And of course, that's going to, you know, um, have a counter effect where China then intensifies its military buildup. Then China also further increases their militarization. So, you know, we have got, I mean, that's my point is like, we've got to end the endless U.S. wars, especially in Asia, especially the longest standing U.S. conflict, which is the Korean War. And if we could do that, then that will have um, really important implications, I think, for um, mitigating the rising tensions between the U.S. and China. Um, and I think it will obviously lead to uh, greater security for Asian Americans at home. That was well said, and, and definitely no need to apologize. You go as long as you want. I mean, you, you covered a lot of details, and in the article, you cover even more. You talk about how, you know, how, do you, how does it not involve the humanization of Asians when you can have military bases in Okinawa that destroy the environment? How do, you know, uh, how do you not have a de level of dehumanization that allowed the United States to do a coup and, and a subsequent genocide in Indonesia in 1965, East Timor in 1975? Right. You know, these things cannot happen without dehumanization. And, and I'll just add in as a closing point here that like there's no such thing as having these wars overseas without a reverberation at home. And the example of anti-Asian violence is an instructive one, but also anti-Arab violence uh, during the war on terror uh, spiked. And you mentioned the example of Japanese internment during World War II. There's no such thing as having these dehumanizing wars overseas that don't reverberate at home. But, and I want to thank you so much for joining me, Christine, but before we end here. Can you talk about what exactly are you, are you working on now with Women Cross DMZ or otherwise? And, you know, what do you hope people take out of your activism? Uh, is, is there anything that people should go out there and read? Any other authors uh, besides yourself, of course, uh, and, and activists that you think people should look into? Uh, well, I, I, gosh, we're going to end the Korean War. So we're going to see a new House resolution um, introduced by Ro Khanna and hopefully some other Republicans and Democrats. So just keep an eye on that. We would love your advocacy and solidarity to to push uh, the Biden administration to end the Korean War. Um, but there is an exciting new initiative that I helped kind of birth, which is called the Feminist Peace Initiative. Women Cross TMZ created it with Madre. Uh, and the Grassroots Global Justice Alliance. And it's basically, we are 
trying to advance a feminist movement driven foreign policy. Um, you know, that foreign policy, which is, you know, basically the tool of diplomacy, which has been militarized and, you know, the executing endless, endless wars, America's endless wars. Um, we believe that if we can democratize how U.S. foreign policy is shaped and involve more people and especially diasporic communities who are who who know and, and who know the experience of U.S. wars and militarism can be involved in shaping a new U.S. foreign policy that orients it away from control and domination towards actually cooperation, justice, reparation, that um, we could actually build a United States that isn't an empire that isn't aggressive and hostile to the rest of the world, but that actually can live in harmony and in peace with the rest of the world. And so I do think that that is a very important, it's a bold and visionary idea and seems impossible. But I think that, you know, the younger generation that is more attuned and wise and because of social media, because of podcasts like this, because of new forms of media that isn't just controlled by corporations, that we can actually, um, you know, break through and think of a different way in which we could all coexist. So that is the feministpeaceinitiative.org. And it is something that I am really excited to be a part of. Um, you know, there are um, some really amazing scholars, obviously, on Korea and in the Asia Pacific. Um, there's a new book by Christine Hong. She's um, a professor at UC Santa Cruz that looks at race and the Korean War. Um, there, you know, Susie Kim, who is a professor at Rutgers University, she's coming out with a new book on on um, Korea, North Korean women. Um, you know, there are just countless others. Um, so, I mean, I won't take up the rest of the time, but it, uh, you know, I think that this moment of anti-Asian violence really does provide an opening for us to raise our voices together to really challenge um, the U.S. war machine against China and, um, and to really figure out a, a different way forward because we don't want to see, obviously, World War III with China. I could not agree more with everything that you just said. And yes, absolutely. There is no such thing as a war with China that won't be a disaster for humanity. And of course, all this stuff, as you said, reverberates at home in tremendous ways. But I want to thank you for joining me. That was Christine Ahn. She is the founder and executive director at Women Cross DMZ. Christine, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, thank you, Matt, for an awesome conversation.